chapter 8, verse 3. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, And her fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out for our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem. And laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in Pharaoh's house, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? With this retort, Moses fled. And became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, 
Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what's the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, 
except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, even as we read in this chapter, you have given us your word that we might listen. You've given us ears that we might hear. And so that we might obey. Lord, we don't want to be like the fathers who heard your word as delivered by angels in the law. Lord, you heard your word proclaimed from the prophets and time and time again they stopped their ears and hardened their hearts and stiffened their necks. Lord, I pray that there would not be a single soul in this room who would harden their heart to your word. Lord, that all might receive the grace they need and embrace it in full repentance of all their sins. Lord, that you would soften all of our hearts and guard them from the temptations that so quickly lead us astray. We pray that you would work in power now as we examine your word and cause us to obey it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians will sometimes say, in fact, I myself have said this, how wonderful it must have been to be a prophet of the Lord, to be, to be given such a, a magnificent calling to serve him of all the peoples in that generation, to have God directly speak to you and to reveal his word to you so that you would be his ambassador to others. It would be an indescribable honor. However, it would have been also one of the most painful and discouraging callings. Because in most cases, the prophets were not honored or appreciated by the people whom they served. They were hated. I mean, just recall that glorious vision that Isaiah the prophet received in Isaiah chapter 6. And what God told Isaiah immediately after he received that vision. He says in verse 9 of that chapter, Go and say to this people... Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And just as Isaiah and the other prophets were called to minister to hard-hearted people, the truth of the matter is, we as Christians will have the same calling. And we will sometimes be given opportunities to serve people whose hearts are very soft and are eager to repent. But more often than not, both in our evangelism as well as in our ministry within the church, we will need to minister to hard-hearted people. And this is why three times in the book of Hebrews, the author warns his readers not to harden their hearts. He cites Psalm 95.8 and says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. And this verse actually tells us how the hardening of the heart happens. A person hears God's word. They understand what God's telling them to do. It's clear. And yet they still refuse to change. 
They refuse to repent, either to stop committing a sin they know is wrong, or they refuse to start obeying Christ in something he's called them to do. And they they rationalize it, they make justification, and they remain unchanged. They become just hearers of the word and not doers. And as one of my preaching professors would remind us, he said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same word that causes people to weep with joy and delight and to, and, and to sing songs of praise even in the midst of great trial. That same word will break people and bring them great misery because they refuse to obey. They'll be hardened into dullness and spiritual darkness. And that's why it's so utterly dangerous to rationalize or justify sin. A a Christian should never blame another person for their sinful response. Which is very easy to do. Because people sin against us and often in their sin we are tempted to sin likewise. And then because of that, blame that person for our sin. Now just think, how did... How did God respond to such rationalization when Adam tried that tactic in the garden? God, it was the woman you gave me. And God said, oh, oh, my mistake. I'm sorry. If I hadn't given you, if you you weren't married to a sinful woman, you wouldn't have sinned. I understand. Adam, I'm sorry for calling you to account. No, you know that's not how he responded. In fact, he spoke to each person there. Satan, the man and the woman. And each were given um, a consequence for the sin that they had committed. So people can tempt us, but their sin never justifies our own. And so there's never, ever any justification for sin. The, The minute we excuse any sin, any lack of conformity to God's will, the minute we do that, we are turning in the direction of hardened, allowing our heart to become hardened towards God. And we will eventually become blind to God's will. And I think often the people with the hardest hearts believe themselves to be very righteous. They're not even aware that their heart is hard. They're not even aware that their sin is even wrong. In fact, they often believe that in their sin, what they're doing is actually right. We have an example for us in the passage here. As Stephen is assaulted, condemned, and no sin is ever actually leveled against him. The Pharisees and Sadducees did the same with Christ. Often, again, the hardest hearts believe themselves to be righteous, which is why Jesus told us to first take the log out of our own eye before we confront other people. Consider also Paul's rebuke in Romans 2. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Just think about David's anger. When Nathan confronted him and 
and told him about this man, who had, this, this rich man who had wronged a poor farmer by stealing his beloved sheep. David was enraged until, until Nathan looked at him and said, David, you are that man. David didn't argue. He knew it was true immediately. And this is why Solomon, his son Solomon wrote in Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And in Psalm 32, David actually explains how he felt when his heart began to harden because he didn't confess the sin, because he didn't repent from his sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And the Bible goes on to to explain other symptoms of the hardness of heart. Having a lack of patience with others. Having our affections for spiritual things and for Christ dulled. You know, when church, going to church becomes more of a chore than a delight. Or reading the Bible is something we have to be disciplined to do rather than something we anticipate. We're rigid and inflexible with others. Argumentative. A reluctance to show mercy to others. All of these are signs of a hardened heart. So how should we minister to people who manifest a hardness of heart? Where there's just an unwillingness to acknowledge their sin and repent. Well, our tendency is we want to avoid them. It's just work. It feels the effort's not worth it. But that's actually the last thing we should do. We have to minister to them in love, which is incredibly tough. Which is why the Bible gives us examples to follow. And we have one of those examples before us in Stephen. This passage, Acts 7, illustrates for us four principles for ministering to hard-hearted people through the example of Stephen. The first is boldly tell the truth. And that's most of the chapter. Also, selflessly accept the consequences. Fervently pray for persecutors. And steadfastly trust that God will use your suffering. Let's look first of all at the first one, boldly tell the truth. The very first verse in this chapter introduces us to Stephen's response Because the high priest asked them, are these things so? In order to understand what uh, Stephen is trying to communicate, we need to remember that he's responding to an accusation that was leveled against him. He was accused of a number of things. And we see these things in um, 11 through 14 of chapter 6. He was accused of speaking blasphemous words against God and against Moses against the temple and the law, and especially that the Jews would return and destroy the temple and the ceremonial law. Now, this isn't what he's been doing, but this is what he's accused of doing. And so, in this message, he seeks to clarify what he actually believes. And so, that's what he does. 1 through 22, he refutes the accusation of his blasphemy against God. 
23 to 34 in regard to Moses, 35 to 43 in regard to the law. And finally, he states his conviction regarding the temple. And that's what he closes with in verses 44 to 50. So in this message, Stephen is seeking to clarify that God's worship is not limited by a location. In fact, he's going to talk about how most of, most of what he's described doesn't take place in the land at all. It doesn't take place in the temple. God is worshipped. God is with his people outside of the land. Because he's not bound by a temple. Because he's made everything. He exists everywhere. Heaven's his throne. Earth is his footstool. Moreover, he wants them to see that even as God has manifested himself to his people and raised up various leaders to direct them and to save them, that time and time again, his people have responded in rebellion. Multiple acts of rebellion against God and his messengers have been part of Israel's history and it culminates in the murder of the Messiah. So Stephen begins with his response regarding Abraham. And he specifically points out that God called Abraham while he was still living in Haran. Again, this is outside of Israel. But even after he arrived in the land that he called him to go to, he never received any of the land. In fact, it emphasizes he didn't even get a a foot's worth of the land. Instead, that land was promised to be given to his offspring. Instead... Abraham is, dwells in the land, and then afterwards his, his children are eventually sent to Egypt. And that brings Stephen to the patriarchs, namely Joseph and his brothers in verses 9 through 16. Stephen points out that about this period in their history that Joseph was persecuted by his brothers. That's how they ended up in Egypt. And it was because they were jealous of him. You see that. It's the same word that's used earlier in Acts 5.17 to describe the jealousy of the Jewish leaders regarding the church. They were jealous. So despite this persecution, Stephen emphasizes that even though they were persecuted while in Egypt, God was with Joseph. Blessing him even there. While the rest of the world languished under the famine, Egypt prospered under Joseph's leadership. So much so that that's how he then invited his brothers to join him. And all of Israel then lived in Egypt for 400 years. And this brings us to the story of Moses and the Exodus. Stephen points out that while they were in Egypt, they also were persecuted by having their children exposed Moses being one of those children. However, God used that very persecution of exposing children to have Moses be raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's household so that he would be instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and therefore be uh, in a position to lead his redemptive purposes. In verse 17, it tells us that when he was 40, Moses attempted to show them his purpose of redemption by killing an Egyptian who was wrongfully beating one of his Hebrew brothers. But instead of embracing Moses as a savior, as a redeemer, instead they rejected him. 
They, they said, who has made you a ruler and judge over us? And so at this retort, Moses flees into the land of Midian. And Stephen's pointing out that once again, Israel rejected God's messenger who was seeking to help them. And he goes on to explain in verse 30 that after the 40 years of dwelling in the land of Midian, again, not Israel, God appears to Moses and calls him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people. And then in verse 35, Stephen gets to the core of what he wants his hearers to realize about Moses. And he draws out these strong connections between Moses and Jesus. Look at verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, just like he sent Jesus. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 36. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs, just like Jesus had performed many wonders and signs in Israel. Moses performed these in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is actually the, the, the prophecy of the Messiah in the law. That prophet Moses is speaking to in Deuteronomy, he's speaking about Christ. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside and their hearts turned to Egypt, just like the Jewish rulers. God sent Christ to be their redeemer and they thrust him aside and they said, we have no king but Caesar. It's the same pattern and it's the same pattern that we're seeing with Stephen and these same religious rulers. They can't listen, they can't receive the truth, though it's so clear because they've hardened their heart and they refuse to repent. To the extent that now they think even in their sin they are doing what is right. Not only did their fathers reject Moses and refuse to obey him, but they turned away from God and worshipped pagan gods. That's how bad it was. So Stephen's trying to help the Jews recognize this pattern of rebellion. He's wanting to recognize the one that's rejecting Moses. They're the ones rejecting what Moses taught because they're rejecting the Messiah that Moses prophesied. His attention then turns to the accusations regarding temple worship. He points out that even before the temple, there was a temporary tabernacle. Again, he's saying that the temple's not as important as you think it is. God's given it to you as a means to worship Him, but He doesn't need a temple. And in fact, he doesn't so much care about temple worship as he does your hearts. That's why he cites Isaiah 66, verse 1. The whole point of that chapter is God is not interested in sacrifices and in temple worship. What he cares about is a worshiper who is humble and contrite and who trembles at his word, which none of these rulers manifest. Isaiah is the one who prophesies this. And Isaiah not only rebuked the Israelites for their superficial concern for temple worship, but as you know, he was the prophet who also spent more time prophesying who the Messiah would be, what he would look like, particularly Isaiah 53. 
And do you know how that amazing message about the Messiah was received by the Israelites? Isaiah wasn't lauded. In fact, the ruler of Israel at that time, a king by the name of Manasseh, had Isaiah captured and sawn in two. This is who the author of Hebrews was referring to when he spoke the prophets. He said they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And the Jewish leaders whom Stephen is speaking to know all this. And that's why Stephen immediately gets to his punchline in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Right? Isaiah. Whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen's point is you are no different than your fathers. You continue to reject the prophets because you even reject the greatest prophet, the Messiah. They're, they're so blinded by their religious pride. Again, they have no awareness of their behavior. Stephen shows us that when, 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 when seeking to minister to, to hard-hearted people, Often you could, you could walk them through all of Scripture and they would have an excuse. They would have an justification. Because they're not interested in wanting to honor God. They're just trying to show you that they're right. That desire to just justify yourself, to be, to be seen as right in man's eyes, is one of the clearest signs of a hard-hearted person. When that's the greater concern, rather than being humble and contrite, and trembling at God's word, caring what God thinks. That's the worshiper God wants. That's the worshiper he desires. And so when you're ministering to a hard-hearted person, how do you reach them? You just have to be strict, straightforward with the truth. Tell them the truth. But you also have to understand that in so doing, it won't be received well unless God works a miracle. And so in ministering to hard-hearted people, you also have to be ready to humbly accept the consequences. Let's look at verses 51 through 58 as Stephen manifests this. Notice the words that Luke uses to describe how the Jews respond to the message of Stephen. It says they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Remarkably, all seven times that phrase ground their teeth is used in the Bible all the other times it's used it's in reference to describing the agony of people in hell they're gnashing their teeth in anger and what happens next is astonishing Stephen is then given a vision of the glory of God with Jesus standing at his right hand and the point is, is that, that he sees Jesus standing in a position of authority. Again, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. And he's looking on. In other words, he's in charge of everything that's happening. He's allowing it. 
It is a display of his sovereignty, but it also shows his pleasure in Stephen. For his faithful witness. He's looking on in approval, not at the rebellious Jews, but of Stephen. And because of his faithfulness, Stephen is able to behold the glory of God. Right? Moses got a glimpse of it. Talks about the glory of God being witnessed in the burning bush even earlier in the chapter. Stephen got to see the glory of God himself. But his persecutors are left crying out and gnashing their teeth. There's a, there's a purposeful parallel there. Those who are faithful see the glory of God. But those with hardened hearts cry out, weeping, and gnash their teeth. In verse 57, it says they, they, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. And in verse 58, they cast him out and they stone him. So in, in, in the midst of all of this persecution, this assault, Stephen's showing that, that this is what we need to expect. But he also gives us another principle for how to minister. Because in his response, instead of pleading for them to have mercy upon him, he pleads for God to have mercy on them. He's not seeking mercy from them. He's seeking mercy for them. In fact, he uses the same words as his Savior on the cross. Verse 59. He asks the Lord to receive his spirit. He prays for Christ not to hold this sin against them. There's, there's no inkling of fear or self-pity or self-preservation. There's only humble, sincere love. He's not thinking of himself at this point. He's not thinking of his pain. He's thinking of his enemies. And note how the chapter ends. And when he had said this, he died. No, that's not what it says. It says he fell asleep. Brothers and sisters, when Christians die, it's just sleep. And we need to, we need to take, take note of that. Like just as you're not afraid of falling asleep this afternoon when you take a nap or this evening when you go to bed, neither should we fear having to die. It's just sleep. We will awake. Because we're in Christ, death has totally lost its sting. Remember what Jesus said to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. Whoever, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, do you believe that death is just sleep for the Christian? It's not something we need to fear. It's okay. It's okay to die. This brings us to the fourth principle for ministering to the hard-hearted. Steadfastly trust that God will use your suffering. As you know, the, the violence doesn't end here with Stephen. In fact, it gets worse for the church. 
And this is because the Jewish rulers aren't just opposed to what Stephen's saying, but they're opposed to Christ. And because they're opposed to Christ, they hate his bride. And so persecution and violence, as seen here, it's not an anomaly in history. This scene is, is going to be played out, not just here, but throughout the book of Acts. And it's going to be played out through the pages of church history. And it's being played out, as you know, in many countries today and quite likely in ours in the near future. This is normal because God uses persecution and suffering to bring about his redemptive purposes. That's what he wants us to see. In fact, Luke emphasizes how God not only used Stephen's persecution to give another testimony of the gospel to the Jewish leaders, that they might once again hear that Christ is the Messiah and, and they, could, they could receive grace, just like the priests in the previous chapter received grace. They too could still receive grace if they would just acknowledge their sin and repent and trust in Christ as their Savior, the Messiah, who Moses prophesied. He gives them one more opportunity. But not only that, he uses this persecution of Stephen to drive the Christians out of Jerusalem to fulfill the Great Commission. Look at verse 1. There arose on that great day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So that's chapter 8, verse 1. Do you remember what Acts chapter 1, verse 8 said? I'll tell you. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus is using Stephen's persecution to bring about his redemptive purposes, just like he used Joseph's, just like he used Moses's. That's how God works. Persecution is part of his plan. And so it's not something we seek. It's not something we pray for. But when it happens, we need to recognize God will use it and not it's not something we need to fear, but something we need to embrace with confidence in his absolute sovereignty and in commitment to his redemptive purposes. If we really desire the gospel to go into all the world, brothers and sisters, we need to be ready to lay down our lives for that purpose. Just as Stephen did. As Joseph told his brothers in just Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Similarly, this is remarkable. The same man that is leading this persecution against the church in Acts 8.1 is the same man who years later will write this in Romans 8.33. And I have no doubt he had Stephen in mind when he wrote it. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can we be more than conquerors? Because God is using these things to conquer, to bring about his victory. And just as Stephen prayed for Paul and the others who were there with his dying breath, God had mercy on Paul. The reason Paul could write that years later is because Stephen prayed for him with his dying breath. God, don't hold this sin against him. I believe the reason we have so much of the New Testament is because Stephen, instead of wallowing in self-pity and grief at all that he was losing, instead he fixed his mind on Christ and he prayed for his enemies. And one of those enemies became one of the greatest blessings to Christ and his church. And this is why we must not fear when we're threatened, when we're assaulted, when we're hated all by all people on account of Christ. And instead, we should rejoice and be glad, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to close with another example of the power of these two principles that were exemplified. Sorry, these four principles as they were exemplified by Stephen. It's about a man named Joseph, a native of Africa who... One day was walking along a, a hot, dusty road and he came across an evangelist who explained to him the gospel of Christ. And then and there, Joseph accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And the power of the Spirit began to immediately transform his life. And he was, he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to go back to his own village and to share with his village the good news that he had just received. And so when he went back to his village, he began going door to door and and telling his friends and neighbors about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered. And he expected to see their joys to light up with the good news, just as his had. But instead of this, the villagers didn't only not care, but they became violent. The men of his village seized him. And they held him down while the women began to beat him with barbed wire. And he was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. And somehow he managed to, to crawl on his own to a water hole. And there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found strength to get up. And he wondered about the reception that he'd received. And, and he began to, to think maybe he'd not explain the gospel well. 
Maybe he told the story of Jesus incorrectly. And so after rehearsing the message that he had heard, he decided to go back and to try once more. So he limped back into the circle of the huts and, and he began to proclaim again, Jesus died for you so that you might be forgiven and come to know the living God. And again, he was grabbed by the men and they held him down while the women beat him. And again, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. Having to survive the first beating was was miraculous and the second even more so. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness and he was bruised and he was scared. But he was determined to go back. And he returned to the small village again. And they attacked him even before a word could come out of his mouth. They flogged him for the third and probably the last time. And again, with as much strength as he could muster, he, he began to tell them about Christ. But before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him had begun to weep. And when he awoke... This time, it was in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. Because the entire village had come to Christ. How do you minister to hard-hearted people? You keep telling them the truth. Make it clear. Be persistent. But selflessly accept the consequences, not in fear, recognizing this is part of God's plan and pray for them, even in their rage. And trust that God will sovereignly use your suffering. It's not an accident. It's part of his plan. Let's pray. Again, Father, it's easy to preach these things. It's easy to admire these things and to to love these things as we see them exemplified in Joseph and Moses and Christ. In this, this African Joseph and Stephen. And yet, Lord, we confess we have very little confidence we will have the strength, the courage to respond. And we beg you, give us the strength, give us the courage, even now, even before we we come to death, that we would be bold. Lord, we we would be willing to risk our reputation. We'd be willing to risk our money, our jobs, our homes, our children, because we love the gospel and we love the salvation of souls. Cause us to be such a church. We pray these things in Christ's name.